Greetings, everyone. I think some of you from the Dallas area are getting tired of hearing from me, aren't you? Seems like the last three out of four times I see the same faces in the audience, first over at Mineola and then all the way up to uh, Lake Murray and Ardmore, Oklahoma, and now here I am in Dallas. I mean Fort Worth, don't I? You know, we're all guilty of that. If we come from as far away as Tyler, we don't know the difference between Dallas and Fort Worth, so my apologies to all you chauvinists over here in Fort Worth. Is this needful to be here on my belt or where, Charlie? Anywhere? I'll put it over here somewhere out of the way. Otherwise, I'll knock it off of there. This must be a little radio transmitter I've got here, I think. I have an opportunity tonight to speak to a group of businessmen and uh, it is really just a uh, favor to a friend of ours who's in a church over in Tyler. And I wanted to talk to a group of those men about some of the principles of life. And it occurred to me in going over a great deal of preparation for that, and also knowing that I was going to be speaking to you here today, that there is a very important principle involved partly something that my father used to speak about a great deal and about which he wrote a booklet many, many years ago that I have changed around a good bit as a result of a lot of research of my own. He called the booklet Seven Laws of Success. And Mr. Brazil mentioned briefly in his sermonette, success. I wonder how many of us in this room are absolutely convinced that there is no chance for us to ever become a millionaire. I won't ask you to raise your hand. The forest of hands would go up. Now, probably if you're beyond 75 years of age and your health is failing, you might want to put your hand in the air, and I wouldn't blame you, perhaps. But you know, many of us do believe that life generally has passed us by, and many people are pretty much accustomed to living with their own personal kind of failure, the rut in which they've gotten themselves in their lives, and they're not really convinced they're ever going to break out of that rut. How many of you remember a single occasion when Jesus attempted to heal someone and he failed? Which argument did he ever lose? Which personal conquest or problem to overcome, such as the confrontation with Satan the devil after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, did Jesus fail? Was there ever a time, no matter what he did, where your mind would conceive of Jesus coming up short, only doing a halfway job, or in some way failing? Did Jesus leave a lot of loose ends? Was he the kind of a person who procrastinated continually, promised himself like we always do, I've got to do this tomorrow, or I've got to get the other thing done, or I've got this hobby, or this project, or this thing I want to do, and he looked around his home, because you know he did have a home, he had at least two of them, and up in the attic, were a lot of the old half-finished projects that he had as a boy. Now, in your attic, if you're showing your grandkids through the house or whatever, how many of us have, as probably in our 20s or 30s when we get married and begin to rear a family, a bunch of old, broken-up bits and pieces of model airplanes that we started to put together? I mean, boys. Or as girls, maybe we look through the old notes that we had in high school and we realize that we'd promised ourselves a lot of extra special, extra credit projects, a lot of research, things we started to write 
even letters that we started to write to someone, and we simply retained them, and we never finished them. I think a lot of people would be looking through virtually the debris of their lives and realize that they have left an awful lot of things undone. One of my favorite discussions when I get to thinking about the price of real estate and all that has happened to us in the past five years, about what happened between my father and myself and the Worldwide Church of God, and the fact that after 20 years of very hard endeavor and labor in the Church of God, my wife and I had to start all over again with really not very much in terms of this world's goods. And I think how easily it could have been done to have invested in even a small bit of real estate or to have kept the first home my wife and I ever bought into which she was moved as a young bride. She hadn't even seen the home until two days after we were married when I brought her from Texas to California and she spent that third morning in the early light even before daylight. The utilities weren't even hooked up. We couldn't turn on the lights yet when we got in that night. She looked it over at night with a flashlight. But to be closer to the work and to avoid a drive back and forth to Temple City back in about 1953 or 4, I sold that house and rented from the college. For the next 25 years, I helped the college buy three homes. But not one dime of that rental ever went into real estate for my wife or my family. So I can sit around and I can reminisce and I can talk, as all of us can if we get to thinking about it, about terrible lost opportunities. If I'd have hung on to that one little house out in Temple City and simply leased it or rented it out, I could have actually had a cash flow just because I needed to be a lot smarter than I was at age 22 or 3 and maintained a positive cash flow, let someone else live in the house, make the payments, I could still have rented from the college, which would have meant about a third or a half of the amount of rental to pay for the one out in Temple City, and long ago, I would have owned a home outright worth in today's market, probably knowing the Temple City market, around $125,000. Easily, $125,000 could be parlayed by controlling enough real estate by the down payment, 20% on a 20-year contract and a couple of condos or something like that. I could have used my GI Bill, which I've never used, an FHA loan, which I have never yet obtained. I didn't know anything about real estate. And nobody ever informed me. No one walked up to me someday and said, you need to know about real estate. Here's a great book you need to read to inform yourself on how you can make a million dollars in real estate. Now, I'm not alone, am I? How many of you failed in your late high school, early college, or early young married years to give a moment's thought to any kind of a project or a program of 20 years duration? But now that you're in your 40s or even your 50s, how many of you realize how quickly 20 years went flying by? And you look back and you realize why 20 years ago, and I'm, the, the kids will have to forgive me here for a minute, teenagers, it was just like nothing. It just went absolutely whizzing by. And it's gone. And where was it? There were so many things that I could have done. Now today, I am searching my own repertoire of perhaps gifts or abilities or special proclivities or projects or hobbies.
to think of ways and means in which I might be able to increase the G.T. Armstrong budget for the sake of my wife and my family. Now, because of the way we're set up in a church, and I won't go into that because the Board of Trustees has to set my salary, I can, I'll just share one secret with you, never make in this life as a salaried minister of the, world, of the uh, <laughs> Church of God International, I can never make the kind of a salary that I am determined to make for the sake of my wife and my children and the grandchildren that, you know, hopefully someday will follow. I'm determined to make more money than I'm going to be able to make within the church. Now, how am I going to do it? Well, I won't give a lot of information about what I'm going to do because I want to talk about all of us and about you. There is no such thing as attaining success in this life. There just is no such thing because success is not an attainable goal. It is something which must be continually pursued. It is something at which you never really arrive. If you were to say, what is the long-range ultimate success you hope to achieve, certainly at the top of the list you would put the kingdom of God, immortality, eternal life. The transcendental goal beyond any other short-range goal you can set would be to escape this human life without having to die, and not only die, but perhaps die in a burning lake of fire, but to have the most incredible, mind-boggling, almost unbelievable, magnificent opposite of that, which is to be changed into a spirit being and to live for the next hundred thousand, the next ten million, the next quadrillion billion years, as we measure years on this earth. That's the big goal. But you know, Jesus set a lot of other short-range goals before us too, didn't he? Because even in the Son on the Mount, he says, and it is in the aorist or the present progressive tense in the Greek, be ye therefore perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now the Greek word means become you therefore perfect. And perfection, like success, is not something you finally achieve and then you look back and you say, now I'm perfect. And let me illustrate that point by the life of Christ himself. Christ was a perfect baby of five days. I'm absolutely convinced of it. I am convinced that Jesus never thought an imperfect thought. I'm convinced he never did an imperfect deed. I'm convinced that his body was perfect, that his mind was perfect, that his attitude toward others and toward his father was perfect that his attitude toward his enemies was absolutely perfect, that there were no flaws in Jesus Christ. And yet, look what it says in the book of Hebrews. Let's turn to that for a moment and take a look at what it says concerning Jesus Christ. In verse 15 of chapter 4, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now, because Jesus was tempted, was he imperfect? Why, no. He was very God in the flesh, but even God in the flesh can be tempted. But it says, yet without sin. So a temptation, a fleeting thought, something that bothers you or that attracts you or that starts the the viscera kind of uh, boiling with want or desire that triggers certain 
compulsions or certain secret, maybe even uh, libidinous desires in your innermost heart or mind are not by themselves sin. That is a temptation. Even lust, if it comes, can be cut off short of a sin because it does say in the book of James that lust, when it has conceived, produces sin. With the mind, we can conceive certain things. If we let that conception, that thought, take root and begin to give birth to a full-fledged idea, baby, to where it becomes a possession of ours, like an idol, that becomes sin. But the fleeting thought, the desire, even a subliminal motivation, no, that's not sin as yet. So Jesus had those thoughts. He had those desires. He had those subconscious compulsions. He had physical appetites. He had trials and traumas. He had a desire to smack some posturing Pharisee in the face. He had the desire to just wipe out a bunch of people maybe on some occasion. But it didn't last very long. He quickly subdued that desire. He was not like us. He didn't harbor resentment or anger or rancor, but was able to completely control it and subdue it. Subdue it. So he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why does he say that? Because he wants you to know that as a struggling, failing, oftentimes stumbling Christian, falling far short of your goals, that when you get on your knees and you talk to God, you're talking to someone who understands, to someone who has been there, to someone who doesn't know you from his lofty pinnacle of God-man relationship, but someone who knows you from the dirt and the dust of the street. Exactly like a man who perhaps makes it all the way from the ghetto to the governor's office. A man like Anwar Sadat, with whom I have spent a number of hours of my life, who was a man of the villages. A man who came up in a village where there was no such thing as an electric light bulb or a flushing toilet. A man of the people. A man who knew that when children had to go, they simply went out back somewhere and went. He wasn't a man of culture, a man of the civilized world, but a man of the villages along the Nile in Egypt. And he became the president of that nation and perhaps their greatest president of all. So when we go to that throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, we are praying to our Savior who has been down in the dirt and the dust of the earth, who has experienced all these compulsions and desires, and who knows what it's like. He saw all the people around him failing, falling short. He had to exist for three and one-half years with a group of young men who were still in the grip of their own ignorance, their own vanity, their own pomposity, their own posturing. He never once sat down and had a meal with a converted man. He never had a single converted friend. There wasn't a human being to whom Jesus could talk, in whom was the Holy Spirit of God, and before whom he could sit down and confess and pour out his innermost feelings, his hurts or his wants, because none of them were on his wavelength. He would have been talking over their heads. They wouldn't have understood for a moment what he was going to say. Instead, he continually was the teacher. He was the master. He was the boss. Just in passing, let me mention to you, 
all of the furor from those who believe in the sacred names notwithstanding, and all of what I think is the breaking of one of the commandments of God in the world in general and perhaps by some of us in God's church by the repetitious taking of the name of Jesus Christ and by many people who talk about Jesus. As Mr. Dart spoke last Sabbath in Tyler, Texas, about those who wear little lapel buttons, Jesus first, or the bumper sticker. Is a bumper the place to put the name Jesus? Do you realize that in the four Gospels you cannot find one single place where one of the disciples ever addressed their Lord as Jesus? Fact. Fact of the Bible. It's not there. They didn't dare. Not once did they use the name Jesus. That familiarity was never allowed them because the name Jesus was a name which means literally in the Hebrew Joshua and which had to do with a person who was to deliver them from their sins and was to die for their sins. They always use another word in Greek, kurios or Adonai or other Greek words, which was master, or rabboni, or rabbi, or lord, but never Jesus, like his first name. Never once did a single one of the disciples address him personally by his first name. Now, later on, in the, in the writings of the Apostle Paul and by Peter and others, we see Jesus, comma, the author and finisher of our faith, etc. They use that term. But oftentimes with the expression Jesus the Christ, or oftentimes in the obverse Christ, comma, Jesus, because he was the Christ and he was Jesus of Nazareth. But in familiar parlance, in just plain conversation, they never spoke to him by using the familiar or his first person name. So Jesus Christ of Nazareth was never to have empathy from another man because he dwelt almost in a different world on a different level. Notice in verse 7 of chapter 5, speaking of him, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, it was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he, were, that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Does that imply that he did not know obedience previously, that he had to learn how to be more obedient, that in some way the obedience that he had toward God was defective? No, it does not mean that at all. But he was a perfect five-year-old. He was a perfect nine-monther, a perfect three-month-old baby. Now, without being, of course, overly clinical about it all, I don't think Jesus Christ was potty trained much short of nine, ten, eleven, twelve months or that any other baby is either, or that he never had a single mistake after his mother began to potty train him. Is there something imperfect about the normal, natural, bodily functions of a sweet baby? Of course not. But neither do I believe at that first moment when Jesus began to cry because he wanted his mother, because he was hungry, because he was lonesome, or for whatever reason babies cry. Never once did that cry change from a little plaintive wail that says, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm lonesome, I want the warmth, the touch, and the smell of my mother, to a cry which says, and I'm mad about it. And every parent can hear the difference in the tone. 
A child can actually change the tone and the tenor and the kind of sincerity with which they get those lungs going in that cry, when after a while they're not any more lonesome, they're mad. I don't think Jesus' cry ever illustrated to Mary, his mother, that he was angry about it. Verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, so you see perfection, in his case, was a lifelong process. It did not mean that he was imperfect as a five-year-old, but you see, a ten-year-old knows a great deal more, is far more mobile and agile, and his young muscles are beginning to develop. And, of course, he is superior to a five-year-old, and a 13-year-old is ahead of a 10-year-old, and a 16-year-old is ahead of a 13-year-old, and so on. And so perfection, meeting each day and overcoming the obstacles of each day and living that day successfully, is a process called perfection. It is not something you have achieved and you stop and you look back and say, now I am perfect. But as you have accomplished perfectly, you still have tomorrow to face. So he became the author of eternal salvation, that is the originator, the captain, the cause, it says in the Greek. The word author really means the cause, the producer of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. I've told the story several times, and I think only a few months ago in a tape, if you heard the tape, my apologies for repeating it for those who didn't about a certain individual who had every quality there is for success. He had ingenuity, imagination, determination, he had drive, he had perspicacity, he had certainly a great deal of bravery, maybe you could define bravery as different from courage, but this man was brave. He had just plain guts, and he succeeded at what he was going to do. I've forgotten his name, the papers and the magazines carried the story. He was a Puerto Rican gentleman on about the 37th floor of a walk-up brownstone apartment in East Brooklyn, New York City. And he walked into the bathroom and took about a triple dose of sleeping pills, slashed his wrist at the basin, walked to an open window, poured lighter fluid over himself, struck a match, and jumped out. Now, of course, the pills would have killed him. Certainly, slashing his wrist would have taken his life. The lighter fluid and striking a match would have burned him to death in moments. But the fall made sure. I mean, here was a man who was absolutely dedicated to his cause and his purpose. But to illustrate the point, he had the wrong goal. Now, you know, just as surely as that man took his own life, a very glamorous movie queen did the same thing. For far different reasons, perhaps, than this lonely, angry, frustrated man who was so determined to kill himself that he was going to leave not a thing to chance. And this young girl, because she had a mother that had a terrible mental problem, was in an institution. She was abused and used by all that knew her. She was quite a cute young girl. She didn't have that much of a body or a figure, really. But she was befriended by various people who thought that she might have the makings of a Hollywood star, an actress. And one after another, all of these various people took advantage of her. But eventually, her hopes and her dreams came to pass, and she literally did become one of the biggest names ever in all of history in Hollywood. She married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced. And like perhaps many movie queens have dreamed, it is alleged that she even had affairs with the President of the United States of America and with his brother, who was also a presidential candidate. 
and the Attorney General of the United States. Marilyn Monroe died a suicide. She was a miserably unhappy young lady. She didn't have the fulfillment, the rewards, the good times, the total full flow of happiness and of success in her life that she sought. She had everything else. She had everything that most people would equate with happiness and success. Mansions, as many as she wanted, glamorous, fabulous automobiles costing up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, as many full-length mink coats and huge baubles and diamonds as she wanted, not one, but maybe two swimming pools, you name it, she had it. And yet, for all of that, she was absolutely miserable. I've told about Hewlett Merritt, who owned the building that became Ambassador Hall, where my mother's painting hangs, and where, after he died, that building was sold for less money than it would take to build the iron fence around it in today's dollars. Well, I remember when it came on the market, and I remember meeting Hewlett Merritt many years ago, a miserable, lonesome old man who, in his later years, though he owned perhaps 40-some corporations and was the chief stockholder in U.S. Steel, and they claim was worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $200 million, was one of the most miserable men, one of the most unhappy men you've ever seen. He sued his own son over money matters, and his son committed suicide during the litigation. His only son. When his wife died, because of his feelings of guilt, he had her buried in a solid silver coffin. I don't know how they stand guard over the grave, to protect it from grave robbers. And in the later years, he could be observed having his chauffeur take his big Cadillac limousine down to Fifth Street and South Spring Street in Los Angeles and go in and out of the old bargain basement rummage stores and buy lampshades and used shoes and old books just to collect them. And when they came into that fabulous big home, 40 or 50 or 60 rooms with an, a different kind of a fireplace in every room in the house, with a swimming pool about half as big as this room in the basement, with a great big weight room and everything, which he, of course, couldn't have used unless it would have been 30, 40 years before, they discovered some other things. A huge, big water tank, about a third as big as this room, to heat and to fill water, or the cold and hot water, for the swimming pool, with a line that went underneath the soil that tapped directly into an unmetered Pasadena city water supply. So from 1905 to 1959, millions upon millions of unmetered gallons of water had flowed into that man's pool and onto his yard. <laughs> Probably the, the house water or a certain amount of water was metered, but the bulk of it he was using was not. Something else they found was room after room after room filled with old shoes and lampshades that he had collected. He owned one of the hugest, biggest fruit ranches up in the San Joaquin Valley in California. And yet, when some of our early students, Owen Smith and Norman Smith and some of the others who were there, were hired by him for 75 cents an hour to go down from Ambassador College and to work on his yard, they would rake leaves and they would mow the lawn and they would water and edge and trim and pick up trash and brush and climb the trees and trim them. And finally, when it came time to pay, he reneged and refused to pay them the wage they had coming. He was worth $200 million, and they were students living on lentils and cornbread, but he refused to pay them. There are a lot of other stories that are perhaps like that, 
And there are other stories about allegedly successful men who, because they had the wrong goals and the wrong principles, and because they didn't know how to live their lives, were miserable and wretched and blind and naked spiritually, in spite of the fact that they had millions upon millions of dollars. Now, I've heard every one of the arguments there are, well, if you're going to be unhappy, let's be unhappy in style. And just because they made the mistake, I'm not going to make the same mistake. If somebody were to show you a bag of money that fell out of the back of a Brinks truck and it had a million dollars in unmarked hundred dollar bills, you, of course, would not make those mistakes and you would know exactly what to do with all of that money. It's not necessarily so. The principles of success are many. I have a big, thick book that Charlie has given me to read. It was published in about 1928, where the man has 15 separate principles of success. There are others that have nine or ten. Some have ten commandments of success. My father had his seven laws or seven keys to success. And many of them overlap, but certainly there is none more important than having the right goal. Now, goal setting is something that everyone must do. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a housewife. I don't mean you can't be one or the other. You can be a Christian housewife, or you can be a taxi driver, or a businessman, a salesman, or a minister, or anything else. But if you are living accidentally, and most of us have, bumbling along through life, kind of taking life as it comes, letting everything that happens really be a surprise to you, then you have no master plan you haven't planned out the day, or the week, or the month, or the year. Now, I am forced to plan a certain number of things every year. So, on the wall of my laboratory in the office building, I have a yearly planner. The first thing I put in, of course, are all of the annual holy days. And labeled are all of the weekly Sabbaths. That's absolutely obligatory, so I can tell you, God willing, exactly what I'm going to be doing on the first day of Unleavened Bread or what I'm going to be doing during the Feast of Tabernacles this coming fall. I know that in advance. Now, in between all of that, as they come up here and there, I will put the various personal appearance campaigns, or the special Sabbath day trips, or the trips to other places. And then there's one thing, if it doesn't conflict, which it thankfully never does, because the seasons vary with the Feast of Tabernacles, I always blank out down in November, or late September, or October. And that's a hunting trip to Colorado. I try not to let anything stand in the way of that. Now, that doesn't take precedence, of course, over other things, but that's a part of the annual planning. Most of us, when we were back at that age in which we lost all of those opportunities or saw them pass us by, did not plan our lives. I certainly did not plan very well in 1970, 71, 2, 73, 4, 5 and especially in 77. Because if I had planned to do what my father accused me of doing, I would have done it. I would have taken over. Now, don't let me shock you with that statement. I mean, I would have taken over from others who were then and are now trying to take over from my father. But as Mr. Rondard pointed out to me, and I never even thought of it, it was some years after the ouster occurred, we were merely reminiscing one day about all that had happened, and he said, how could your father accuse you of having taken over or trying to take over the work? When you were over there in Pasadena, 
very much alive and healthy and on top of everything and in charge of the meetings of the board of trustees and your father was lying with wildly palpitating heart, nearly dead, near death on a bed in Tucson, when all you would have had to do, Ted, is walk into the board of trustees and call a special meeting and tell them your father is near death, he could die at any moment, and we must have an orderly transition and you nominate yourself because he plainly said in his letter which went out in a hundred thousand copies to the whole organization that he has given you the reins of the work and you announce that you are going to retire your father officially as the chairman emeritus of the work still to be much honored and respected but that you are now the chairman of the board is there one person on the board who would not have raised his hand and said I well, I think you in this room know there wasn't, and there wasn't. But the funny thing is, doing something like that never occurred to me. And to me, that is the biggest proof I could ever offer my father that I never tried to take over from him because it literally never entered my mind. Mr. Dart at one point told me that I could have done so. Had I been planning short of that, had I thought, Sometime my dad may just listen to some of these other people who want my head because of their own private little purposes and may simply kick me out of here. I might have planned for my family. And now as I look back and I realize, well, for pity's sake, I could have owned that home. The man who was busily embezzling a quarter of a million dollars of God's work and at the same time axing me in the neck and stabbing me in the back would come down to my office down the hallway maybe once or twice a month and say, Ted, why don't you buy your house? And I would say, Ray, I can't buy my house. I don't have the money to pay the, the taxes on a single family residence in Pasadena, California. He said, we'll write up a land contract. Don't worry about it. He said, what we'll do is in lieu of either a salary increase or bonuses once annually, just give you out of the work a certain number of thousands of dollars and say that satisfies the payments on the house. And I could have had a home that they sold for $600,000, which should have been sold for about $1.2 million, in my humble opinion, and I could have bought it for about $200,000. Ten years ago, I heard another story of a man who did plan. He planned very well. The church purchased for him a huge mansion with a guest cottage, and the guest cottage was bigger than any home in which I have lived. It had two swimming pools. And it was on two, I believe, and a half acres of ground in one of the ritziest residential areas of Beverly Hills, California. The church paid the first mortgage. The college paid the second mortgage. His wife was given $55,000 a year just for household expenditures. How would you like to have that, ladies? I mean, just as a starter, you know, for the groceries, new Hoover vacuum cleaner, whatever, 55 grand a year. They had every single day a truck or two show up from the college with the gardeners with their rakes and hoses and mowers. So they had continual daily five, six days a week landscape and lawn service. The cook, the maid, oh, there were those ladies in the house full time, seven days a week. 
the chauffeur and a butler, all were on salary from the secret top-level payroll of the college and the church. They paid none of those expenses. Now, if you're living in a mansion like that, and it's owned by a church and a college who has the first and the second mortgage, the church and the college are paying all of the household servants, the church and the college are giving you $55,000 a year just to run the house, would it really occur to you to plan so, so very well that somehow you would simply put your name on the deed and by shuffling a deed between the church and the college and a quit claim back to yourself, and a donation to the church, or however you do it, I don't even know because I don't understand that kind of transaction, you end up owning the house. You just put your name on the deed and then you sell it. For 1.8 million, that's 180, I'm sorry, 1 million and 800,000 dollars. Now that's more money than any of us have ever seen before in our lives. And you pay off whatever remaining indebtedness, which might have been a few hundred thousand, I don't know, and the remainder goes in your pocket. Now I call that planning. I call that goal setting. I call that dedication, imagination. All of the various elements of success I'm talking about. I won't identify the gentleman, let you guess about who that was. But he publicly admitted, and of course all I'm doing, in case any of you are getting nervous and your socks are slowly disappearing in your, your shoes and you're thinking I'm about to invite a lawsuit, let me tell you, I'm quoting from a newspaper article on my desk at this instant, and, and I'm quoting George Duke Magian, who was the present governor of the state of California, who then was the attorney general, and he is the one who said this gentleman sold the house and pocketed the money. Those are in his own words. So I'm just quoting Governor Duke Magian of California. That's planning, isn't it? But the trouble is, I'm not the kind of a person who knows how to plan like that. I'm just really dumb when it comes to planning in those directions. And you know what? The more I think about it, even as I think back about my statement earlier about what I might have done or what I could have done, I'm glad, I'm really thankful that I'm dumb in those directions. Because it seems to me I remember a scripture that talks about being wise as serpents but harmless as doves, and about how the children of light are a little more stupid, a little more obtuse than the children of this world when it comes to the dealings and the ways of this world, and how we are to be as babes when it comes to do with sin or with evil, but is very intelligent when it comes to do and has to do with righteousness. Most of us are accidents ourselves. I think that we live accidentally, we form friends accidentally, even some of the occasions that we have for uh, certain partying or certain recreational opportunities happen as an accident. I re well remember when I was a kid we did what we called, pardon my language, dragging the gut. Now, if you haven't been a teenager in the 1940s with a 1936 automobile, you don't know what in the world that is. Dragging the gut was simply driving up and down Main Street. And since everybody else did the same thing, and every Saturday night at a certain time when the movies were out, all the young kids from their high schools, Uni High and Springfield High and Eugene High, all dragged the gut. So, from about maybe 10 o'clock till nearly midnight on Saturday, hundreds of teenagers would haunt about three or four or five different drive-ins, Pronto Pup and Quickie Service and this and that, or they would go to certain movie houses, and they would all know where the others were going to congregate. 
And they would hang halfway in and halfway out the windows of their automobiles and kind of see who was there and find out what's going to happen. Well, eventually, something always happened. Somebody would go to the Pronto Pup and they would get one of these dough-covered wieners on a stick and they would eat it. And as they did, they would dip it in the little cup of mustard. And it would occur to them that they could have some fun with that cup of mustard, so they'd order a couple of extra ones and they'd take them with them when the lady came, the gal came, to clean up the sack and the tray. And as they were driving down Main Street, they'd take a little cup of mustard, and when they came near somebody's car they didn't like, out goes the mustard, either in the car or on the convertible top or on the windshield. And sure enough, a happening occurred. Probably a fight, maybe a fender cruncher or something like that, and pretty soon a police car is there, and everybody got treated to what's happening. That's called living life accidentally, and many, of course, do exactly that. Secondly, if we are going to be a success in anything we do, is preparation, or call it education. Now, limited education is available to us no matter how old we are, and of course, the older we get, the slower we learn, but nevertheless, I have very rarely seen people, and I go back now on my acquaintance with hundreds of employees who may have been hired to do various jobs, who really, in a dedicated fashion, purchased or subscribed to trade publications, obtained books and journals on their special field, and really studied it and learned it, and became meticulously educated in that specific field. There is nothing perhaps more available in bookstores today than the how-to kind of books. You go and look in a bookstore if you don't believe me, and especially the kind of books that have to do with motivation, with how to make money, with how to make a fortune in real estate, how to survive the hard times that are coming, with how to succeed. I mean, the subject I'm talking about is right now a business in itself, and there are many major speakers like Art Linkletter and Zig Ziglar and a number of others who are making millions, they're making fortunes, making big money in doing nothing more than giving motivational talks about how to succeed to other people. Salesmen and conventions and people who will come flocking by the tens of thousands. They had a big speak-in or whatever over here at the arena in Dallas only about a year ago. And they had Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, and they had Art Linkletter, and Zig Ziglar, and several other names whom I have forgotten. It was uh, done by a man named Doug Snar, with whom I have talked, out of Salt Lake City, Utah. I don't think they had more than about 10,000. They might have been disappointed in the crowd. But those people paid quite a number of dollars to go and to hear those men. Every one of those men had a tape album or some cassettes or a book to sell the people who came. And the people who came were either out of a job and hoping to get one, maybe ex-brand of employees, or they were salesmen, or they were the laboring force, or secretaries, or junior executives, etc., hoping to get the keys and the information by which they could become a much greater success and earn much more money. That's one thing you can do, and frankly, even though there are those men who repeat their cliches and who whip up a lot of exuberance and have a lot of very oft-repeated funny jokes and stories to tell to illustrate the points that they are making, nevertheless, much, if not all, of what they say, say is true, and the principles they teach really do work if they are applied, and many people have used those principles and have gone out and made an absolute fortune. 
I'm reminded again of one that's very close to home in Big Sandy to tell you that even housewives, who maybe remember some of their childhood fantasies, can make a fortune. This was a young lady who was the wife of a young man that used to work for me in the television studios over in Pasadena. He was not liked very well by the manager of the television studios, and so to get him out of their clutches, I sent him out to the Arizona desert to assist me in some wildlife photography for a series of articles I was doing in the plain truth that had to do with, does God exist? And he photographed woodpeckers in saguaro cacti, and he photographed desert foxes, and he would go to little pools of water and set up his flash bulbs and wait until midnight and take a picture of the predators who would gather around. We published these beautiful pictures to show symbiosis and various relationships of how owls will nest in a cactus to prevent others climbing up to get the little baby owlets and so on, and how they take refuge in a cactus. And you know, he later, I believe, either was fired or simply quit, and I lost sight of them. Some years later, I learned that this young man's wife had decided, I don't know exactly how she did it to this day, but I'm sure others in the room may be familiar with it, to get out some old patterns that she once had toyed with, I guess as a girl, to make clothing for a doll, and got out her little sewing machine, and I guess cut out some of these patterns. Well, I, I think the idea hit her that she ought to share these patterns or perhaps sell them, and so she advertised them. I guess to begin it was just word of mouth and a few people got interested. Well, eventually she advertised them. I don't know whether in the local newspaper or a local or a monthly magazine, but to make a long story short, and I don't know but the basic tip of the iceberg or the her business manager, and today that young couple are multi, multi-millionaires. They must own about half a big sandy. If it doesn't sound like a big town, that's no problem. Don't worry about it. When you've got as much real estate as they have, and a lot of those old, old homes that they have made into absolutely fabulous, lovely, brand new looking creations with gorgeous paint, Annie's Attic, a restaurant, uh, antique shop, and so on, a big factory, huge computers, hundreds, I guess, or dozens at least, of employees, and a budget up into the millions of dollars a year, all because a housewife began to work on a childhood hobby, and it became an in-house business that grew to become a factory, and you can see great big two-page, two fold-out, full-color ads in some of the biggest magazines in the United States today. I don't remember his wife's name, and I think to her goes a great deal of the credit, but Jerry Gentry and his wife over in Big Sandy, who are members of the church, and uh, were in Ambassador College. I remember hearing him sing and her play for him many, many times, and yet they are now probably, I would not wonder at all, but that Jerry Gentry may be the wealthiest man in the worldwide church of God, because his wife used to enjoy cutting out doll clothing patterns. That's a fantastic story. And, of course, it could only happen in this country, in the United States of America. Where else can a person have that kind of opportunities? You know, someone once said that the greatest possible potential of the human brain is its capacity for imagination. 
The average individual who might look out here at a whole pile of concrete and boards and building materials would only see a pile of unsightly junk. But if you are a builder, or perhaps you're an architect, you might see instead what you could create out of that pile of junk. I will take that and put it into three C's, or three words, that I think is absolutely true in a principle of life we have to use, and that is, if you can conceive of it in a pragmatic or a practical way, if it is conceivable, then it is believable. And if you believe it, then you can and you shall achieve it. But first you have to conceive of that thought, of that project, of that desire, that opportunity. And then you've got to come to absolutely believe it with all of your heart and all of your being. Now there's a little bit of esoterica in this perhaps because I am a firm believer that the, um, the, the mind has never really been tapped and that actuality uh, of a sixth sense, the actual aura, call it that, or the magnetic field, if that's what it is, or some sixth sense of brain waves that are emitted from our minds are actual reality. I don't know of any other way, and I'm not talking about demon power now, but I don't know of any other way to explain literally hundreds of documented cases of twins or of brothers and sisters or of parents and children who have been separated oftentimes by hundreds, even thousands of miles and yet have communicated with each other. How has it happened that, for example, a wife would sit bolt upright in bed during the Vietnamese or the Korean or, the, or World War II, and in all of these struggles this has happened, and not just in our nation but other countries as well, and at, a, at an absolute instant where maybe it was broad daylight, nine, ten, twelve thousand miles away around the earth, her husband was hit by a bullet. And she cries out involuntarily his name, and she knows that he's dead. And it's weeks before she finds out that on that date her husband was killed in action. There are many documented cases. Now, how do you explain that? How does that happen? How is it that people have actually documented the fact that you, by being negative, can wilt a plant? That you can walk into a room and you can have a big living plant there and you can, you know, you wouldn't want to cuss out the plant, but you can be negative, you can say I hate you or whatever to the plant, and you can just sit there and feel like I don't like that dumb, stupid plant. And you can be negative around the plant, and now I've never done this, and I'm almost afraid to because I'm afraid the plant might reach out and grow around me or something, or might attack me at night or something like that. I might wake up and find the tendrils of the plant wrapped around me. It might retaliate. But they do claim that you can actually wilt a plant, or the plants will be healthy if you're thinking positively. So I know that I've experienced this. My wife has, I'm sure, more often than I have. One party of the marriage or a person in a group can be ebullient. They can be up. They can be effervescent. They can feel good. They might bring up a certain subject. And you're not feeling all that good, you're feeling down. So you take a dim view of the subject, and you're sort of the devil's advocate, so to speak, and you take the negative approach. And you start talking about all that is wrong with this idea. In a matter of minutes, you are upset, it's no longer pretty, the sun isn't shining, the birds aren't singing, it's not a good day, it's rainy, it's cloudy, it's overcast, at least inside, in your mind, because someone else turned on a lot of negativism, 
and communicated that to you, and oftentimes we can communicate that type of thing without even really speaking. We can do it by our expression. We can say the right thing in the wrong tone of voice. We can just have a certain look on our face. We can have a certain mannerism, and we can communicate negative impulses, negative feelings to other people. Now, that would be absolutely devastating to a lot of people in a lot of professions I know about. A salesman? Forget it. He would be a failure every time. A parent even dealing with a child. A teacher trying to communicate to her students. A husband trying to get along with his wife. A minister trying to preach to a congregation. You can think of a lot of cases. A doctor trying to help or to confide, to, to uh, be, you know, personal enough to encourage a patient that uh, they need a certain treatment. Wherever you're trying to have confidence, where you're trying to influence someone to do something which is better for them, and you would have in the back of your mind a certain amount of negativism, you will, without even meaning to, without being aware of it, turn them off and you will fail. It is only by having that absolute, total belief and conviction in what you are doing, what your beliefs are, that you will gain either that sale or you will be effective in teaching or whatever you're trying to do. The creativity or the imagination of God is a never-ending source of not only amusement but of great curiosity and of almost breathtaking observation, at least to me. We have a pair of binoculars that we keep right on the desk by one corner of our living room. And because I live in an area where there are a lot of birds, I don't think of myself as a bird watcher. But I doubt if two days go by that one or the other of us are not exclaiming to the other about certain birds. There are a lot of these, a lot of people call them all kinds of names like shite pokes or water turkeys, but I happen to know that they are cormorants. They're a black freshwater cormorant, and they will come in flocks by the thousands wheeling around and diving and swimming for fish right out where I can see them, out off of the slope that leads toward the lake where we live. And always with them will be a group of these seagulls. Except they're lake gulls, I guess. Well, maybe some boys are with them, but lake gulls and cormorants. And I will get the binoculars and look at them. Well, the other day I saw a bird I'd never seen before in my life eating a lot of these little red berries out of a holly tree. And they were, and it just popped into my head. I hadn't even thought of this bird. I'd never even remembered the name, hadn't read, hadn't seen a picture of it since grade school. But because the school to which I went in Eugene, Oregon, was a school that was very heavy on nature and biology and some of those studies, I remembered immediately Waxwing. So there's a great big book we've got about this big, filled with color pictures in it, and I said, I think that's a Waxwing. And here it was with a little black mask on its face and little red tips on the wings and a yellow band on the black of the tail, and there was a whole flock of about 20 or 30 of them, and they have a little crest that comes right out the back of their head. Prettiest little bird you ever saw. And they are eating those red berries. I looked in the book, and there was that bird in a beautiful picture under a whole family, a whole group of many different kinds of wax wings. And portrayed with them were these red holly berries. And one of them, the picture of the bird that I found in the book, had the red holly berry in its beak. And I was dumbfounded. So I read about them, find out about their diet and what they do, and a little bit about their nesting and this and that. I continually will be curious about nature. Now, I stop to think about the incredible number of books there are about wild creatures. All of the books that I have on North American animals, on animals in Africa, on insects and fish, and I know a number 
probably hundreds and hundreds more of the types of animals and fish than the average person. And when we will play some of these animal games and so on, of naming them and so on, I'll call these names out of my mind from somewhere because I have been fascinated by nature and by what God has created. But if it takes science that much information, careful study, dissection, microscopic examination, observation, divers, people that go to the Amazonian rainforest, people that go to the Central and South American jungles, people that go out into the vastness of the ocean and look at the habits of the migrations of gray whales and so on, who study them for years and get doctorates, doctor's degrees by spending years in Papua, New Guinea to look up maybe a liar bird or something like that so they can tell us and inform us about it when we've never seen them before. If all that investigation, all of those years of study can do nothing more than inform us partially about the way these marvelous creatures work, build nests, migrate, how they survive, how they protect themselves, what about the tremendous imagination of the mind that created all of this in the first place? Almighty God who created every one of those creatures and beings. When I think of how great is the mind of God, I'm reminded of the statement Jesus made that he knows every sparrow that falls and that he actually counts every hair that is on our head. And a lot of people don't really believe that. You can take issue with that statement. You can say, God's got a lot more to do than keep track of the amount of hair on my head. And isn't that really just a statement to kind of impress us? It doesn't really mean that God knows every single time a little bird dies. Well, now, wait a minute. I believe the mind of man is probably only tapped to about 10, 15, 20 percent of its capabilities. Well, I talked earlier, mentioned to you earlier about this idea of communication or of what you might call telepathy or being able to somehow broadcast a thought wave without giving voice to it is absolutely true. How do you think the miracle of prayer really occurs? Do you believe that when you pray you are actually linked to, you are actually hooked up with or plugged into a direct line of communication with God. Now, if you don't, if you've never really faced that and looked at it from the point of view of your own personal belief about your life and about salvation, then probably you've been kidding yourself about prayer. Do you believe God hears you when you pray orally, when you can't be heard in the next room, and you can't be heard over there in the parking lot? Now, in the parking lot, they can't hear me, and I'm speaking into a loudspeaker. I could be shouting in here at the top of my lungs in prayer, and none of these people going by can hear me. Take a trip with me for a minute and pretend you just took off, and you're just turning toward Phoenix, and you're already at 3,500 feet from DFW. And a lot of you have done that. And you look down. Could you pick out this building? You might be able to, but it would be very difficult unless you knew a lot of familiar landmarks and exactly the way the freeways were up here and what part of Fort Worth to look in, the relationship with this address to downtown and the big buildings, you might be able to pick out this building. Now, from about 10 miles up, you couldn't even do that. But what about the vantage point of our astronauts up there in the space shuttle? And what about somebody on the moon? And where's God? 
Is he the other side of Venus? Why, that's only in our solar system. Is he clear the other side of Alpha Centauri? It would take 55 years for you to get there at the speed of light. You would spend more than half a human lifetime in getting to the closest star outside our own solar system. But beyond that is the Milky Way, and you know the story. Beyond that are other galaxies, of which there are billions in the so-called black holes of the universe. And where is God? Now, if you believe that God can hear you when you pray orally, do you believe he can hear you when you pray in a whisper? Do you believe he can hear you if you pray silently, in your mind? Could you conceivably, sitting in your chair right now, in this room, on the Sabbath day, say a silent prayer to Almighty God? And do you believe, and do you really believe that you believe, do you know, are you convinced that if you did, God would hear you? I don't want to embarrass anybody by asking for our hands to go up. Do you believe that? Now look at this incredible thing I'm saying. I am saying that you have immediately available to you, according to your Christian belief, according to what you're convinced of, and you're so convinced of it that you go to the trouble of getting yourself out of bed and showering and shaving if you're a man, well, it's shaving, period, uh, and uh, doing your hair and all this, and looking your best and driving off and coming over here and coming to church on the Sabbath day. Your belief takes you hundreds of miles to a different place to observe a service with God's people. Your belief causes you to take out a checkbook once in a while and pay God that first 10% of your income that you believe is His. Your belief causes you to go hundreds of miles and take your family and pack them in and go to the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you believe that when you pray to Almighty God, He hears you? that you are in direct communication with him. Now, if you believe that, and if you know it, then what I'm talking about is partially your responsibility. It is what you generate. It's what you emit. In the Spanish language, they don't say radio station. They say radio emisora, radio emissary, the emission emitting in a pulsating line of waves, radio waves, out of a tower through electronic impulses, and they are immediately emitted into the atmosphere where they literally reflect off a huge circle of radio or radioactive charged particles called the ionosphere that is a belt around the entirety of the Earth. Instantaneously, they bounce back to the Earth, and it happens, as I've said before, so fast that in a big auditorium, if you had a transistor radio and you're tuned in, and I could be piping my voice through a microphone to a local radio station on a telephone line to a tower 20 miles away, it would emit my voice into the ionosphere, bounce it back directly into your little transistor radio more quickly than my voice without amplification could travel from the podium to the back of the hallway. And you with the transistor radio would hear my voice before those in the middle rows would hear it, before my sound wave emitted from my mouth could travel through the air in the room. Electronically, it would travel hundreds of thousands of miles and get to your ear. Now, we live in a world 
in which there is nuclear energy, radioactivity, magnetism, which man does not understand and has never really defined or deciphered, and where there is telepathy, where there is a brain wave, where there is the capability of a person thinking something, wanting something, believing something so hard and so firmly and with such tremendous conviction that he can make it come to pass. I'm touching on the edge of something called faith, aren't I? Your responsibility again. How much of the communication in prayer is God's responsibility and how much of it is yours? I think it may be about 50-50 or maybe even more our responsibility. A lot of us may have conceived of it as God doing it all because God is so big and he is so great that he's up there and, oh, I hear him, you know, immediately. You start to pray, well, God hears you. He does it all. Or would it be almost like if you had a long, long, long garden hose. Now this garden hose is miles long and it's completely filled with water. Believe it or not, I don't know how much suction you would have to generate or how much air you'd have to generate by blowing on it. But if you've ever done this as a boy, if you've ever played with a garden hose in your front yard, you ever siphoned gasoline or siphoned water out of a boat or out of a tank of some kind, you know that you can actually get it completely filled. You don't have to blow on it or anything. If it's completely filled, you can stick it in the tank and stick the other end of it down lower than the tank, and immediately, just because of gravity, it'll start to drain, and you're siphoning it all out. And that's why you've got to be careful you don't burn your mouth or swallow gasoline if you're going to begin to kind of draw air out of a tube to get that flowing. But instead of thinking of it as a kind of a nebulous brain wave, what if it were like fluid that you were actually pushing with the mouth out of a tube? And as you blow on this end, the water is flowing out the other end, almost like projecting in a continual sense the flowing of this water miles away from you. Are our thoughts, meaning our deepest, most intense believing thoughts directed toward God, not more like blowing on a hose, and the harder we blow, and the more power, the more we generate and put in at our end, the greater the pressure, and the greater the force, and therefore the greater the flow, and the greater the measure of movement of that water. I don't think necessarily that God hears every prayer I pray. I say that perhaps with embarrassment or shame. I don't think that necessarily you can say that God hears every prayer you pray. I can remember falling asleep during prayer. I can remember peremptory prayers. I can remember prayers of embarrassment where my mind was almost mostly on what I sounded like and what other people thought of my prayer than it was on what I was asking or on God. Then I remember other prayers, like praying for my mother when she was dying, or praying for my brother Dick when he was near death, or prayers 
some of which I don't think have been answered, or if they've been answered, they've been answered by a no, not yet. Or there was a real difference. And I remember other prayers of a personal nature where somehow it was almost like God was in the room. And we're over a period of time of absolute intensity, of just continuing almost doggedly until you're really perspiring, until your knees are aching, setting the alarm clock and staying there until it will ring. After one hour, you finally know that you have somehow pushed those thoughts out of your brain and your mind so far that they literally have met God halfway. And you have contacted him, and you have communicated with him, and you've actually established a direct contact. Other times I wonder if they go as far as the ceiling. Now if I know that, and I really do believe that about my mind, and I know that my mind has the capability of a of emitting a magnetism, an actual power, an actual force, a force of positive thought, a force of belief, a force of conviction, that other people will respond to that force. Why can't we tap that resource and why can't we use that force of emitting, of exuding, almost like an aura of heat or energy that we generate from our innermost being, positive belief in everything we do, whether it's a housewife with the chores that she has, or one of you in your job, in the way in which you deal with other people. I can read through some of these books. This gentleman who wrote the book clear back in the 1920s lived in the same age in which my father was a young, struggling man. And I read, by the way, in the book that uh, Mr. Romans has loaned me, a great big thick book on the 15 rules of success, a number of standard statements I've heard my father say a thousand times. Get your happiness out of your work. Quotations from Albert Hubbard. Many of the principles of success that he has used, they're not new. Men have been preaching and teaching those things from time immemorial. It was a different age back then when a man could simply dress up in a snappy, snappy suit and walk back and forth up and down one of the most busy boulevards in Chicago and be noticed by the head of a big publishing firm and finally find himself invited to lunch. Things just don't happen that way anymore today. Because back then, about 50% of the wealth was in about 4% of the hands of the American population. Today it's far more equally distributed, and things like that just don't happen. Well-dressed people don't come to the attention of multimillionaires just because they happen to see them on the street seven mornings in a row. This gentleman said that happened to him, and I have no reason to doubt him. But many of the principles that he spoke of in his book, having to do with the exuding of self-confidence, of having good health, of wearing the right kind of clothing that really fits you in good taste and so on, of being brisk and positive and snappy when he didn't have a dime in his pocket, came back absolutely an impoverished man in his old, used, worn-out army clothes in 1919, walked into the best tailor in Chicago, and because of his manner, and the fact that he had known the man before the war went promptly about seven hundred and some odd dollars in debt and because he was from the skin out dressed in the best clothes he could find he began to believe in himself he began to exude a feeling of self-confidence he began to feel successful and before you know it he had the money to start a major business of his own
He was launched and on his way in publishing and writing and became the head of a big magazine and later on became successful writing books and doing a lot of other things that he'd wanted to do. And it was all something that happened in his mind. I wonder, as I think about some of the things that I am going to plan on doing, how much I will be able to put into practice what I preach, put into practice what I believe, what I know about some of these principles. I have a prod on me from the standpoint of the daily radio program, the articles I've got to write. We have a deadline every single time we have a newspaper. I have to be at certain places to preach each time, so the requirement is absolutely there. At 10 minutes till 12 o'clock every day, I get a call from the studio at 10 minutes to 12, so I've got to go in and sit down before the microphone and come up with a brand new radio program. So all of that is comparatively easy. I don't mean that it's easy that I do it like falling off a log, but I mean it's pattern, it's program. Someone is there to shove me in the right direction, and I'm committed to doing that. But now in what I would call my leisure time, I've made up my mind, without giving away a lot of my secrets, but I've said it before, that I'm going to begin to write books. Not just a book, but books. Many books. Books on any number, any number of different subjects. Not always necessarily about the real Jesus or Peter's story. And I'm very thankful. I really am, sincerely. I always had as a goal, and I always wanted to be the author of at least one book. And I cannot tell you the absolute feeling of satisfaction and the thrill I got when the first big boxes of hardbacks were brought into my office, and I didn't even know what the cover was going to I was disappointed in the cover because I told them I didn't want my own picture on it, and they put it on there 11 times. They not only put my picture on it, but they put a whole bunch of faces facing every direction conceivably, and then a portrait on the back, and I was really upset with that. I really was. But the fact about seeing the book in hardback, knowing that I had gone to the struggle of writing 777 pages, it was overwritten by at least three times, of copy, and then having to reduce all of that down and redo it and redo it and get it in shape, send it off to a publisher, and finally seeing the real Jesus by Garner Ted Armstrong, hardback, on the shelf. And any time my eyes strays to my bookshelf, there's two of my books side by side. I wrote those. Well, you know, as a boy, I rejoiced in reading my way completely through the children's section of the Eugene Public Library. And later on, most of my way through many sections in the adult section. I've been an insatiable reader and will read sometimes one or two books, three or four, in a week. On our way across to England, I remember in five days, I read five books, but that's because we had a lot of extra time on our hands during that time. So I'm an insatiable reader. I've decided I'm going to write books. How am I going to write books? I've already made up my mind how I'm going to do it. I'm going to outline the book. And then I'm going to simply talk into a tape recorder. So I've called around. Got me copies of Writer's Digest, a writer's publication. And I've been able to agree and to admit to myself, I am an inferior writer. I'm not a good writer. Writing does not come naturally or easily to me. I have to work at it. For all of my adult life, I've written little short articles on biblical and Christian living subjects, changing gears and getting into something like wildlife or adventure or discovery or novels would be a total different field for me. So I called the other day and I found a lady who for a certain number of dollars will take tape recordings and I don't even have to put the commas and the periods. All I've got to do is indicate where I might want a paragraph. And she will send those back to me for a price 
in manuscript form ready to go to a publisher's. So I'm going to do that. I love to sit around and regale people with interesting anecdotes and stories. When I go hunting, we sit around and tell stories. Did you ever look out the window and kind of daydream? Well, don't you wish you would have had a tape recorder there to put your thoughts down so you could capture them and look at them on paper a little later? A lot of people will think they will become inspired by something they read, by something they see on television or perhaps a motion picture, and they will think, I'd like to do something like that. Well, I would. Someday, so help me, I'm going to write a story based at least in part on an autobiographical line and sell it as a book. Because some of the things I have been through, if I were to simply write them from the point of view of a totally different character and make the story theme virtually unrecognizable, I think some of the things that have happened in my life and some of the exciting places I have been, some of the things that I have done, I mean, after all, 40-some trips over the North Atlantic in a Falcon jet all by itself could be the basis for a very interesting adventure story, especially if someone forced down to the Greenland ice cap and had to walk about 200 miles to the shore. I've thought of things like that. And so I could write some adventure stories and have the actual, genuine description of a Falcon jet, of the cockpit, of exactly how it works and all the things that happen, its range and its fuel, and make it real interesting. And I dream, I daydream about doing things like that. Did you ever think along those lines of a couple of dozen different things you want to do, but you just say, I can't do that. There isn't time. I don't know how. Well, as the old Chinese philosopher said, the world's longest journey commences with only one step. And so you simply have to start. So I've got in my folder a book outline about an adventure story involving someone on an old tramp steamer. And one of these days, not robbing time from God's work, I am, for my own satisfaction, going to finish that book. Because I have determined that I'm going to practice what I preach and put into effect in my own life some of these goals, and I am going to increase the family budget. I wonder how many of us ever decide we are going to break out of the place in which we are right now in our lives, and we are going to go ahead and do something more, not just for ourselves, but for our loved ones, for our family, for those we can help. I know oftentimes we feel like we're banging our head against a brick wall because it seems like we knock on every door, but you know, you just got to keep trying and eventually real success is going to be there. I do not count myself a success, not at all. We've had certain successes. We are growing, albeit slowly. I think the last report I saw showed us at about a 24% increase, but I don't uh, get too excited about that for the simple reason that a long, hard summer is going to come, and I know that the Holy Day season has temporarily put us a little bit ahead. But success for us would be to me to be on 50 or more television stations and a couple of hundred or more radio stations and having a weekly audience up into the many, many millions in the United States and having outreach programs into other nations instead of being right now so very, very small as a work and as a church. And I know that that also can come. And I know that nothing can stop it because I know that the one with whom we have to do has all the power in the entirety of the universe and that nothing can stay his hand. Almighty God has limitless power. What I said about broadcasting, about us actually contacting God, 
bears a great deal of thought. If you can tap the very power of the universe, as Jesus Christ did, and if Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, which he did say, that you, by believing, can do even greater things than he did, then you've either got to believe that, or we're making out Jesus Christ of Nazareth to be a liar and his word not true. And I know that when it comes to that kind of power, I am nowhere close to being a success yet. So that success is still to be achieved. That is a goal still to be reached. It's a plateau that we haven't yet arrived at. And that is the kind of faith, the kind of conviction, the kind of belief that results in miracles. I've seen a very few miracles in my life. I saw one worked on my wife. A big blue swollen rupture disappeared overnight. And it's always been a phenomenal, uh, just an awesome, mind-boggling thing to me to remember that. When she was carrying our second child and she was prayed for by my father and myself and anointed and went to bed that night in a bed in the Dorchester Hotel in London, England with a big swollen rupture, purple around it, in the abdomen, the lower abdomen area, and carrying a big, what turned out to be more than an eight-pound baby boy on a trip in Europe. And to wake up the next morning with her skin and her flesh just as smooth as ivory and no trace of it, no rupture. I mean, what are you going to say? I mean, I saw that. I touched it. It was there. And then it was gone. I mean, I, there's no way that anybody at the point of a bayonet or with bullets coming at my body is going to get me to say, that didn't happen. That's not true. Yet, you see, on the other hand, there are great miracles for which I, des I, I really earnestly, eagerly, desperately almost, desire to occur for the sake of my own family, two deaf sons, and how desperately I would love them to be able to hear. They don't. Unless I accept a part of that responsibility and say, look, I'm a human being, and it's not somebody else's fault, unless I say, unless I can push that line of communication out further and further until I actually establish that total contact where it's like God is in the room, and then after that time I ask him to do that, and I know it's going to happen, then I will have succeeded. You know, it makes me wonder if we haven't totally misunderstood this business about the gifts of healing in the Bible. And Ron Dart and I have been discussing that, and we're going to be doing some further study into it. But for example, the church has always felt that the gifts of healing are like God taking healing as a gift and giving that gift of performing miracles into the hand of a minister, man or woman or somebody, in the church. And that if I or you or one of you had the gifts of healing, you would be like a healer. Or is the statement really that any kind of a healing is a gift from God, and that when we receive the gift of healing, God has given us healing as his free, loving gift? Which is it? For all of my years in the church, it's been assumed it is the former and that the gifts of healing are a spiritual gift, like the gift of knowledge. And that God hands someone that gift, and we have made excuses for ourselves for about 30-some years. We look at those who here and there have been healed. I just mentioned the healing. And then we look at those who have died and those who have not been healed. 
And so we say, yes, the Apostle Paul healed, and then he said, Trophimus, have I left at Miletum sick? And he told Timothy, drink no longer water but a little wine for your stomach's sake and your often infirmities. And there were people he knew and loved who were sick and were not healed. And we've said, well, great healings will bring bad publicity. They will bring persecution. I don't see why they would. What kind of bad publicity have the so-called faith healers got? What kind of persecution do people like Oral Roberts get? And when they built giant universities and great big huge towering monuments to their own name like hospitals that aren't needed, I mean, they shrug that off like water off a duck's back. Do those men seem to you to be beleaguered and much persecuted and very, very negative and fearful and put down? Or don't they seem to be just going along right at the pinnacle and the apex of their great success? And yet they have paraded the idea of healings before the whole world. I think we make excuses sometimes. My question at the beginning is, are we successful Christians? And I can say concerning myself, not yet. I know how to succeed. I know what the rules are. I know what some of the steps to take, what, what some of them are. I know what some of the principles are. Now it's just up to us to take those principles and to use them, to take that first step and to be a success. Whether well, it's like Mrs. Gentry that worked out a method of making little doll patterns, for pity's sake, into a multi-million dollar business, or whether it's the healing that we in the church need.